Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Roger Best to our show. Dr. Best is the president of the University of Central Missouri in Morrinsburg, Missouri. Hi, Roger. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Dave. Thanks for having me. So can you talk a little bit about the University of Central Missouri and why students select your institution? Oh, yes, definitely. The University of Central Missouri was uh, founded as a normal school in 1871 for the state of Missouri. Uh, so as such, we have a very long and proud tradition of teacher education and teacher preparation here. Uh, but we also actually have a designated statewide mission in professional applied science and technology. So that means we actually have very highly enrolled and strong programs in information technology, computer science, cybersecurity, nursing, kinesiology, biology, and, and actually an aviation program, which is pretty unique. Uh, we also have some historical strengths in areas such as uh, safety sciences, the industrial sciences more broadly, uh, business, criminal justice, digital media production. And uh, we also have a nice uh, area in visual and performing arts. We also have locations in Warrensburg, Missouri. So this is our main campus, which is a rural location, a town of about 20,000 in Warrensburg. But we do have a Kansas City Metro location in Lee Summit, Missouri. And that's where we do a lot of our uh, graduate education, workforce development. So we have a strong workforce development hub. And um, because of our capabilities in virtual delivery, which we, we call virtual today, you know, historically online, uh, we can deliver pretty much anywhere in the world. So, and speaking of that, uh, almost 12,000 students here at the university, and they come from about 40 different countries and from most states in the United States. So we have a pretty diverse student body here. And even though they may come to us for very specific programs, some of those programs I mentioned is either our statewide mission or our uh, historical strengths. Uh, we do know that more broadly, they come to us for several different reasons. Uh, we do have quality academic programs. Uh, we uh, have rankings across uh, many of the major publications, whether it's New U.S. News and World Report or the Princeton Review. Uh, but we have better than 50 acknowledgements from other publications, either for the institution or in our individual programs, as, and we're acknowledged as being among the best in or among the most in, and these are either regional or national rankings. So uh, students do come to us for quality academics. We do have a very strong value proposition. Uh, our undergraduate tuition uh, for one year is about $8,000, so we're priced uh, very competitively. But when you then turn that into our placement rates and the types of jobs that our students get, so we have about a 95% placement rate for our students wow. coming out, graduate and undergraduate, and their starting salaries, it all rolls into a very strong value proposition for our students. And then uh, when you get here, you find that we are actually uh, very engaged with our students. And so this uh, level of student engagement, we, we care about our students. Uh, we believe that our job is to empower their success and when they come to us and they're working hard, and that has required hard, hard work on their part, we, we do have rigorous curriculum. When they're working hard, we're gonna work equally hard with them to try to ensure their success. And uh, we hear this from our alumni. We have about 100,000 alumni and we get to, to meet with them and speak to them regularly. And this is what we hear from them. We, we are engaged with them and we made a difference for them. 
just one example, we are located near Whiteman Air Force Base. Uh, we've been recently designated as a gold military-friendly uh, university. Uh, so we believe in serving our students to the best of our ability, and, and I think that level of hospitality shows. So kind of add all those things together, and not just the programs, but the quality, our value proposition, and then how we serve our students when they're here. Uh, I think that's why students end up at the University of Central Missouri. Yeah, I see. I was just looking at some of my notes on it. It looks like you've flown, uh, flown the B-2 simulator out at Whitman. So if they're letting you fly that, you must have a pretty decent relationship. <laughs> yeah, so we, we do have a great relationship with Whitman. And, and I will tell you, there's nothing like uh, being in the cockpit of even a simulated B-2. It's, uh, I won't tell you how many times I crashed. I did uh, manage to take off and land, but the refueling can be a little bit challenging. Yeah. And, and um, I, I'm, I'm, pro-normal school because that's where I came from. I, MSU Billings is where I got my start, which was a normal school way back when. And so it's always fun to watch those those campuses grow out of that that background. Yes, yeah, really the original workforce development approach, yeah. if you think about it. These uh, schools were started to meet a very distinct need, and that was lack of teachers, particularly in rural areas. And we were one of two that were founded in 1871 that ultimately uh, developed into four-year institutions and, and really comprehensive, so four-year-plus institutions at this point, uh, maintain that strong tradition, but able to prepare students in many other ways as well. Yeah. So so what's new at the university? Uh, so we're actually in the process of making some pretty substantial capital improvements on campus. That's one of the things we're looking at. We are a campus that's 150 years old, at this point, 151 years old. And so uh, we uh, find the need to continually reinvest in our equipment and, and in our resources. So I mentioned that we have an aviation program. We do own an airport. And so we've uh, made some pretty substantial improvements to our runway and taxiway. And uh, we are in the midst of building a $5 million terminal facility that will house our brand new aviation education center. Uh, we are also about to build a, a new wrestling facility uh, for our wrestling team. That's about a million dollars. Wow. Uh, I mentioned that we have a, a statewide mission in professional applied science and technology, our science and technology building. Uh, we uh, did about a $16 million renovation of that a few years ago, and we're about to put $5 million more into that facility in order to improve our um, classroom environment and uh, our resources are available to students. And to adapt to really the changing nature of higher education delivery modes, we've been doing a lot of work in our classrooms over the last year and a half to put in uh, new types of equipment. We do a lot of now synchronous uh, virtual delivery both in person. So we, if you're taking a class synchronous virtual, we want the experience to be very similar to what it's like sitting in that classroom. So we have class members who are engaged with each other. Some are in a classroom setting, some are virtual. They're able to engage with each other. Uh, we have lecture cap capture that's part of that model where uh, you can go back and look at uh, things later. So we have both synchronous virtual, uh, asynchronous delivery possibility, and then an in-person experience all in the same classroom. And as I mentioned, the goal in all of this really is to improve learning for our students, improve the, improve the resources they have. Just a, a unique thing that we did uh, about a year and a half ago, we onboarded a, an ARVR lab. So we have augmented reality, virtual reality lab that allows uh, not just our students to program the lab environment. So our computer science and programming students can get in and actually program some interesting things. Uh, but we are teaching teachers how to use augmented and virtual reality mm -hmm. in delivery of classroom material at the K through 12 level. 
And we also have other programs within uh, our university that are able to use this as a resource to see how augmented and virtual reality will affect their professions, whether it's designing facilities or if you're in marketing and your um, you know, product price place promotion. So you can test out a couple of those P's in a virtual environment without actually having to do physical setup. Uh, so those are some of the physical resource sides uh, of improvements that we're trying to make. We're also uh, looking at a lot of uh, partnership and programmatic relationships. Uh, so we have uh, been recently designated as a, a U.S. Air Force Air, Uni- Air University Associate to Baccalaureate oh, good partner for you guys. in the fields of criminal justice and environmental safety and risk management. Uh, so that if you're uh, in the Air Force and you get your CCAF uh, associate's degree, you're able to take either of those programs anywhere in the world. Uh, so from a virtual delivery perspective, uh, we also have signed some agreements with community colleges, so we're, we're interested in the, making sure that students transfer seamlessly. Uh, and then, of course, with our own programs, uh, making sure the pathways are very clear. So when you start with us, uh, our model for advising is we, we meet you where you are, and I uh, know that people have different backgrounds, and so we, we meet you where you are and identify the pathway to get you to whatever it is you came for. And if that's a four-year degree, then uh, we have a pathway for that. So we're spending a lot of time and effort on the programmatic side too, to make sure that seamless transfer exists and to ensure that we're uh, able to uh, graduate students when they come to us. You know, gosh, you got a lot, you got a lot of neat stuff happening on campus and, and I trying to figure out what program I want to ask you about, but you, so I'm not very familiar all the places I've ever worked. I've never really had an aviation program. So as you're trying to build upon that, tell me what your aviation program is all about. Yeah, and, and I have a little bit of familiarity. I did serve as dean for our college here at UCM that houses our aviation program. And uh, we have several facets to that. One is our professional pilot major. And so we literally are preparing students to be pilots. And uh, ma- the majority of these students either go on to do charter service or uh, fly with major airlines. Uh, so they start out with regionals and move to majors. So I've been on flights. I won't name the major airlines, but I've been on flights and getting off flights and wearing my UCM brand and have the pilot or the co-pilot go, oh, that was my university. (laughs) Uh, So it's really one of those fascinating professions that uh, very applied and and hands-on. And we have students, we have a fleet of about 20 aircraft. um, And uh, some of those are twin engine planes, some are single engine. And students literally uh, get in either a simulator or the cockpit of an actual plane and ultimately learn how to fly. Uh, in addition to that, we do have uh, some aviation management. Uh, we do have the, we started the first MBA program with a focus in aviation uh, management and airport management. So we're able to combine some of our resources on campus to create some new, uh, unique programs as well. Uh, but uh, the uh, aviation programs are really unique. Uh, a former faculty member, he's since retired. Uh, the the best lesson he ever taught me, he taught uh, physics uh, and so he would always ask, what makes an airplane fly? And you start thinking about the physics associated with flight. And the uh, correct answer was money. And so it's, it's one of those uh, professions that you love to get into, but it's not a cheap profession to be a part of. Yeah, that's a, that's a great comment. Um, let's talk a little bit about you. Talk about yourself and the path that led you to become the president at UCM. Yeah, so I actually came to the University of Central Missouri when it was called Central Missouri State University back in 1995. I came directly out of my graduate program, graduated from Florida State with a PhD in finance, and came to uh, Missouri for a faculty position here at UCM, uh, teaching uh, corporate finance primarily, 
I uh, had never been to this region of the country until I came to interview for my faculty position. I, I grew up in the southeastern part of the U.S. and I thought that it would be a nice adventure to come see the Midwest and uh, explore and spend a few years in the rugged winters of the Midwest and then move back to the southeast where it was much warmer. And after a few years, I'd really fallen in love with the place. And I questioned why I would ever want to leave a place where colleagues were so good to each other and where we had students who worked hard and were doing their best to achieve. And frankly, uh, for whom we were making a pretty significant difference in their opportunity set and um, decided that I would just uh, make a career here if they would keep me, uh, never thinking that I would be a university president. But, but I tell people, uh, I fell asleep in a meeting and uh, they made me an administrator somewhere along the way. I messed up my plan to be just a full professor of finance here on campus. And so I, I ended up in a chair position for chair of uh, economics and finance and ultimately an associate dean position and then dean of our College of Business and Professional Studies. Um, and then uh, most recently, uh, our previous president asked me to come over and fill in as the chief financial officer and ultimately uh, accepted a chief operating officer position for the university for a few months before he announced his departure. And again, uh, my aspiration was never to be a university president, probably just the opposite. And uh, I was uh, very fortunate that the Board of Governors, that's our governing board, asked me to step in on an interim basis uh, while we were waiting on presidential transition. And really, um, uh, very much the way I fell in love with the university, kind of fell in love with the position and the things that we were able to do as part of the position were very appealing to me. So when the board asked if I would just stay on as president, I was very grateful asking me, first of all, and that I had the ability to, to stay in the position. And uh, uh, that's how I ended up uh, as president of the university, never really any plan to do so, but uh, a series of uh, either fortunate or unfortunate event, events, depending on your perspective, I guess. And, and here we are. So uh, very uh, appreciative of the opportunity. You know, I, I've uh, talked to quite a few academic leaders over, over the last couple of years, and I've noticed everybody has a different thought process on somebody going through the, all the ranks and learning all those things and understanding the university inside and out and all the positions. And other people like to make the argument, you know, new ideas, fresh ideas, all that other stuff. But, but I think just like in your position, and I hope I'm correct, is you have probably built so much social capital that you have when you meet with your community leaders that it, that it probably makes life a little bit easier for you than somebody new coming in on campus and trying to do things there. Am I correct? It was definitely very helpful to know the community and know the leadership within the community, uh, but also know the university extremely well and uh, the, for the university to know me, frankly. So right. that, uh, when, when we're engaging, when we're talking about su substantive issues, uh, campus already knew my orientation, knew what was important and knew that I was committed to the university. Uh, whenever you bring in new leadership, there's always the concern that or are they just passing through? Or are they really here and committed to our mission, committed to our students? And will they be here for the long haul? And in my case, I had already been here over 20 years. And so uh, no doubt that I was planning to be in this community for the long haul. Uh, and you're right. It was extremely beneficial from my standpoint, my leadership to already know who was doing what, who was where, the nature of our programs, where our historical strengths were. Uh, and, you know, I joke about this, but it's really true. Part of your job as president is to not mess up things. Right? You always think about things that can improve and how can we do things better. But 
there's there's a presu- sometimes there's a presupposition there that things are bad and they're not. So right. you have to make sure that as you're looking for improvements and way to make things better, that the things you're doing incredibly well as an institution, you don't mess those up. Right. And so that it was helpful for me to already know uh, what not to mess up and what to stay out of uh, and to let that happen uh, and and keep going as good as it's already been going. Okay. Um, since you've been there so long and you've gone through so many positions, you know, even, even as a department chair. So tell me how your leadership style has evolved over the years then. And, then, and that's a great question. I, I would say I'm probably a little more resolute today than I was. Some of that's probably just experience in general and age uh, where you start recognizing that if you're in the profession long enough, that uh, persistence pays off, patience pays off. And so you have goals that are longer term in nature and there's no need to be impatient with those. Uh, you can just t- kind of stand firm and be resolute and keep chipping away at the direction you want to go. I'm very much a, an evolution versus a revolution kind of person. And so uh, evolution just takes time. Uh, you know, of course, it takes a vision and, and goals, but time is really the, the factor and you have to be patient in that. So I would say that I've learned to be uh, patient and recognize that the patience will pay off in terms of turning an organization or improving an organization. And I've also very much learned that the decisions I make in this position have long-term consequences. Uh, So I saw consequences of presidential decisions in other positions on campus. So it very much taught me that whatever decision I make, I have to think about two things. What is the immediate impact on the individuals who have to carry forward with those decisions? but also what's going to be the impact on the institution 10 years from now for making that decision. Uh, so I would say really twofold. I'm more resolute in my uh, decision-making, but certainly staying on task and, and patience in the process while at the same time uh, weighing the different options much more intentionally and much more in depth than I might have 10 or 15 years ago, because I know that decisions are very consequential in nature. Some aren't, right? Some, some pass very quickly, but some are going to be incredibly consequential. And in, in 20, 30 years from now, the institution will still be uh, dealing with the consequence of that decision. Uh, and my hope is that it's always a positive consequence, but uh, those are the types of things that I, I really have become more reflective in that sense, I suppose, after having uh, moved through various positions and seen how each position uh, plays within the campus to ensure that we're all successful as an organization. Well, let me elaborate on that a little bit then. What's been some of your biggest lessons you've learned as an academic leader? Um, probably uh, twofold, um, uh, probably many more than that, I would hope. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> I, I would say that um, invariably the people who come to work in higher education are here for the right reasons. We have this higher mission that we serve, in my opinion. And, and I tell people, I think that probably healthcare is about the only other profession where we make a bigger difference in somebody's life. Uh, healthcare, you're saving lives. So that's pretty immediate and, and pretty impactful. Uh, but get beyond that uh, and think about all of the different professions that exist we have profound impact on individuals. And what you find is that the people who are attracted to higher education tend to be attracted to that mission. And in the moment, we may be disagreeing about something, but realistically, if we both have the same goal, if we're trying to get to the same endpoint, which in our case is student success, then those are just details. It's really not that big of a deal. We have to take one path or the other to get there. 
but not get so caught up. For me, it's not getting so caught up in the disagreement part that we lose sight of the bigger goal. And I always tell our folks here that, uh, in fact, what I promised them uh, whenever I first became president, one of the first uh, meetings I had, I told a large group, I can promise you two things. There are times I'm going to be wrong and there are times we're going to disagree. And my, in my case, um, we're all going to mess up. We're going to be wrong about something. So we have to make sure that we're ready to correct that, ready to admit that. But in those moments of disagreement, I always tell everyone, as long as we're professional, right? This is just work. Or this is work stuff we're disagreeing about. We're disagreeing about the right thing, right? We're, it's still about student success. We just are disagreeing about the way to get there. And so uh, for me, one of the things that I've, I've very much learned is people in higher education, by and large, are great people and they're here for the right reasons. And I don't have all the good ideas. So there are times I need to take a, a backseat and let somebody else's idea uh, be the, at the forefront and let's go with that idea. What advice would you give new university presidents? Uh, you, you know, I could say things like uh, think carefully before you do, before you do this job. But uh, uh, at some point, I, I said yes to this position for a reason. And it's a great position to be in. Um, you realize very quickly in the present position that there is a natural ten- tension between the short run and the long run. So in the moment it would be very easy to make decisions that are easy for that moment. But those may not be the right decisions for the long-term mm-hmm. part of the institution. And so you very much have to, as president, think very carefully about what's expedient versus what's in the best interest of the institution for the long haul. And sometimes what's expedient is where you're gonna get less pushback, you're gonna get less criticism, but that's not what's best. And so as a new president, you have to be willing to accept the criticism, knowing that you're the person who has to be the 10 year, 20 year from now person. You can't always be the person in this very moment. The institution has to function. The organization has to be successful in the moment to get to the long run, but you can't sacrifice the long run for the short run. So that natural tension that exists between the short run and the long run is really acutely uh, obvious when you're in the president role. Um, in terms of uh, more generic advice, I'd, I would say you can never be overprepared, right? Always be uber prepared for anything that may come along. Um, the thing that um, would be easy to kind of forget in some moments too is always love your students, right? So the students, each student who comes to us, they have their own unique journey. They have their own unique story. And we need to make sure that we're engaging with that student and their own journey, their own story. They're here for a reason. So let's be a part of that and uh, just love them and and treat them as uh, the adults that they are. And then I would very much say, because it's easy to forget this part, enjoy the good stuff. In these roles, roles as president, we get to do so much interesting, fun stuff. Uh, we've had some very high-profile visitors on campus uh, this semester, and uh, if I had said names, people would immediately recognize who these, these individuals are. Well, as president, we get to host these individuals, so we get that behind-the-scenes personal engagement interaction. We get to go to the sporting events. We get to go to the concerts. We get to go to the plays. We get to go to all of the stuff that uh, is, is afforded by a university and get to have a special place in all of that. And so there are times it's really important just to sit back and enjoy that moment that you're in and not be thinking about that next moment 
since you do have to be the 10 year, the 20 year out person? You know, I think you're the first one we talked about enjoying being a president. I, I really, I really appreciate your answer because I agree. I think, I think there's a lot of exciting things that you get a, you get a chance to do. And it's very cool that you recognize these are, these are fun, exciting things to do. Yeah. There are, there are moments when I sit back and, and uh, hopefully our, our governing board won't hear me say this, uh, but there, there are times when I sit back and think, wow, they're paying me to do this. Uh, now there are other times when, when it's the opposite, right? Wow. We're not getting paid enough to do this, but uh, frankly, it is pretty special. Uh, you, get to, you know, you think about your own university experience and if you had a good time as a student, you still get to live in that moment with your own students here at your university. And so uh, just enjoy it. That, that it really is a special position and uh, one that uh, carries with it uh, so many perks that uh, are immeasurable in so many ways. Yeah. What's been the proudest moments for you at UCM? I would say probably my proudest moment. And if I take myself out of the president role and just think about my UCM experience, it was always incredibly rewarding to me professionally when I would have former students uh, who were in my classes come up and say, uh, I very much enjoyed your class. It helped prepare me for, and then they would name whatever uh, job they were in or what they were doing in life. Uh, so incredibly rewarding to know that, yes, they worked incredibly hard. It was their efforts that really got them to where they were, but I got to have some small part of that, some small part of their life where they, they feel that I made a difference for them. So that is so rewarding. Now, in this position as president, I get to hear those stories about all of our faculty members. Mm -hmm. And so as university president, it's always incredibly rewarding to be at alumni events or other events where I'm talking to our alumni who say things. And I've heard this twice recently. Uh, I owe everything to the university. Now, I know that's not true. They had to work very hard to achieve, uh, but they give us so much credit for the engagement that we had with them and the level of preparation that we provided for them. So uh, to me, that it's very rewarding to know that I work at a university where uh, that's the mindset of our faculty, that's the mindset of our staff, and it's making a difference. At the end of the day, the students feel that not only do we care about them, that we they, they tell us that we exhibited it and we demonstrate that and it did make a difference for them. Um, let's change topics here real fast. What do you think are the major challenges and opportunities that universities will face over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, and five to 10 years is, is really in traditional university time is a very short amount of time, but we are seeing so much change right. happening right now in higher education and in the world of education in general. Uh, certainly we can blame the pandemic for some of that or give credit to it for accelerating some of what we're seeing. Uh, realistically, it was coming. And so the, the pandemic may have highlighted some of this, but we're, when you live in a world where individuals are able to binge watch and able to access what they want, when they want, whether that's through internet, through YouTube to figure out how to fix something, uh, through entertainment with uh, binge watching and, and on-demand streaming, we have an educational model that was built many, many hundreds of years ago. And we're still following that same basic model. Um, now, oh, less than 100 years ago, we, we, or maybe a little more than 100 years ago, we really structured it into what we know now as the four credit model. But 
uh, we're starting to see the questions related to that for credit type model. So if I am in industry and I need talent, or if I am an individual and I need to improve my talent base, I need to, to improve my skill set. Uh, do I really want to go sit for four years at a university and improve my uh, knowledge, skills, and aptitude? Or is there an alternative way that I can achieve that? And so I think in higher education, we have to think carefully, and I mentioned the value proposition a couple of times, but we have to think carefully about what our value proposition is. We know that individuals come to universities for more than just getting a job. It really is much more than that. But we know that a lot of individuals come to university with that ultimate goal in mind. And while we do a great job at preparing folks for the workforce in certain disciplines and lots of disciplines, we know we prepare them to be broader citizens than just workers in an industry. So when we start thinking about the skill set development in a world where on demand is the, the norm up against what we historically do from preparing individuals in a broad sense, how do those mesh together? And so we have to very much figure this out in a short amount of time, because if, if our proposition is just about preparing people to get a job, uh, we've got to change our model because industry can kind of do that themselves at times and prepare individuals for what they need. Uh, but what we have to be prepared for is preparing the citizen and then preparing people for those uh, proverbial jobs that don't exist now, but will exist in 20 years and, and teaching people how to think critically and exposing them to uh, potentially radical ideas and, and forcing them to think differently and, and question us and question themselves and, and really push the balance forward of society. Yeah, I, that's really a good point. I know when I was a, a department chair at one time, I was, I was overseeing some public safety programs and I met with the, the police chief and, and of course I'm looking at all the, all those little skills that come along and he's like, Dave, I can, I can teach people how to shoot and drive the police car. I need to know that they, they need to know how to talk to people and figure out, I mean, it was, is exactly what you're talking about. It's just not sometimes about those specific skills that people come to school for. That's right. And we know that people who are successful are those who have skill sets beyond whatever entry level position they're in. Uh, you're, you're never going to be in anything more than that entry level position. If you don't, have skill sets beyond that or ability to, to develop those skill sets. And so we have to be prepared for uh, what that next iteration of higher education is. Uh, one of the more immediate concerns we have are the large numbers of individuals who haven't been going to college in the last right. year. Uh, so pandemic related or not, we know that there are about 940,000 fewer college students today than there were two years ago. And that's not demographic in nature. That's just individuals not going to college. Certainly a robust economy and good uh, job opportunities help with that. But what happens five years from now right. for those that cohort of individuals that, that opted out of college? Some of them are going to need some sort of higher education, and we need to be prepared to deliver that to them and whatever that context is for them, whether that's a certificate program or uh, a larger degree program or even a, a, a basically a certification uh, that's industry-based, but also do so in a mode that is accessible to them. Right. Um, some academic leaders believe students lost ground academically during the pandemic. So do you have any ideas of how that problem can be resolved? Yeah, there, there won't be an easy solution to that, frankly. Uh, it will just be hard work and we cannot lower our standards. 
Right. So at some point, standards need to be what they are. They're there for a reason. And we can't lower the standards to account for what some students may have missed during the pandemic uh, timeframe. And so as higher education, we have to be prepared for uh, what that means if students aren't meeting our standards in certain classes. The models we had started moving towards even pre-pandemic were not remediation, but co-requisite. And so if we have somebody coming in without sufficient preparation for name the course, uh, then we would start creating co-requisite sections to facilitate. And so it's really um, a more impactful um, tutoring type of approach or study hall type of approach where you get some additional assistance, but do so in a more formalized setting. Uh, so we have to be cognizant of those kind of models. We have to watch carefully what that preparation is and be ready to address it in various contexts. Uh, it's easy to think about the, the traditional subjects of um, reading English and uh, you know, reading, writing and mathematics, but it's, it's certainly broader than that. The other piece that we're very much seeing is the socialization uh, aspect where students who normally would be going through kind of the prime of socialization in high school, 11th, 12th grade, that kind of got wiped out. Uh, so there were some moves towards that direction anyway with uh, devices and people using devices for communi communication predominantly, but pandemic exacerbated that. And so how can we facilitate the social engagement of our students as well? Uh, that's one of the things that we very much noticed has changed over the last two years uh, that uh, we, we were even uh, discussing today in a meeting, how can we address that with our students and how can we ensure that there are sufficient social skills and social interactions among our students to make sure they continue to develop. Hmm. So, so social skills, I, th that's an, ec uh, uh, an excellent point. Do you think, do you think um, the mental health also, or is there anything the campus is doing to focus on the mental health of students? Yeah, we certainly uh, saw the demands there increasing even before the pandemic. And this is certainly national. It's not uh, specific right. to our campus. Uh, we are one of two universities in the state of Missouri with a certified mental uh, health counseling center on campus. So we have uh, several mental health counselors. Uh, it is a free resource to our students. They actually pay a health fee, uh, but it's a free re resource to them. And we have a structure there to for crisis intervention. We have a structure there for normal appointments. Uh, and then we have referral process. Mm -hmm. So we also have a, um, a student health center on campus. And so we can do some medical things, but it also partners with our mental health counseling side. So some initial evaluation, if we see that uh, some of the medical uh, physical side is being driven by mental health, then we can refer over to our own unit. And then uh, our folks can take them to a certain point. And then we have referral out to other organizations that can, can handle long-term care. If we see some more systemic mental health uh, concerns that, that students need to address. Uh, so it is something that's just going to be part of what higher ed does, part of what society needs. See a lot of demand there for mental health counselors and a, a shortage there. So we're doing our part to try to prepare individuals as well. Uh, but it is certainly a critical need and something that we feel we're addressing well here at the university. Well, what do you think the role of the physical campus is going to be for universities in the future then? Uh, at least for the intermediate term, I think there will always be a role for the physical campus. We have the traditional age students who want a university experience. And when I say that, I mean a very traditional university experience. I want to go away to college, go away to the university 
And I want to experience student life, whether that's Greek life, that's athletics, or just student activities, but that engagement piece. Uh, so there will be some role for physical campus in some context. Uh, we think we do that here at the University of Central Missouri very well. So we foresee that uh, we see that we will have a um, foresee that we'll have a residential population for the long haul. Um, but we know that the true growth in higher education will be outside of the physical boundaries of the, the campus itself. Even our own students who are residential students are taking virtual classes. Right. So they may be here living in our residence hall, engaging with each other in a social context or even a semi-social context that's more university in nature, but taking their classes virtually. Uh, so there's demand for that, uh, both within campus and off campus. And that's really where the growth trajectory is for higher education. Uh, but we think that residential experience is going to exist for the long term, and uh, not every institution may survive that and have that residential experience for the long term. But we think we will here at the university, and uh, just given how well we think we we have um, we do the student experience piece of what we do. Well, it sounds like you've you already have the high flex model already in place with synchronous and asynchronous, and them being able to attend class. I mean, they have a choice already, so uh, it seems like you're ahead of the curve on that, to say the least. And we don't limit our students to one model or the other. So a student can can declare that they are what we call online only. So online only. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gives them priority in terms of selecting the virtual classes from an enrollment perspective. Um, but any student can take any of our delivery modes, whether that's in person. We have what we call a hybrid model, uh, which is some component in person, some virtual and set dates. And then more of the high flex that you mentioned, which is, uh, synchronous virtual or even rotational where you're intentionally virtual some at some point while some of the class is not and you rotate through uh, and we believe in making that those, all of those models open to anybody at their uh, convenience and really the, to try to satisfy their approach so some people learn much better being in a room with others and some learn better uh, in a virtual setting where they're I hate to say the word forced, but somewhat forced to take a little more accountability for their own learning and reading ahead. And so a little more of the flipped classroom approach through the virtual setting. And uh, we want people to learn where they learn best. And and we do allow for them to take any mode. So here's a fun question. If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, it's you, nobody's going to tell you what to do with it. What would you do? How'd you spend it? Yeah, so no president at any university ever would say they have too much money. So let me start with that. Uh, there's never enough money to do what it is we want to do. Uh, I would say that uh, probably for the University of Central Missouri, I would do uh, a couple of different things. First and foremost, I would ensure that our uh, the access to our education is affordable for our students. I am a believer that students should have some degree of skin in the game. Sometimes that's financial. It's, it's always their time. They're required to, to devote time to, to do well. And so I'm not a firm believer in universal free higher education, um, but affordability is key. And we know that some, uh, some of our students really struggle financially uh, to pay for this experience. And we want to make sure that they're able to do that. So uh, I would probably uh, put some money into ensuring that students are able to access our education for an even better price than what we already charge. Uh, But then beyond that, I would uh, put money into our resources to ensure that our, not just our curriculum, but the the assets that we use in our curriculum, the resources we use as part of our delivery 
are as modern as we possibly can make them in this supply chain challenged world we live in, whether that's the actual physical classroom, whether that's the uh, AR VR lab that I mentioned, uh, whether that's uh, new aircraft that are uh, in our aviation program at the airport. Uh, so uh, keeping our facilities and our equipment and resources as modern as possible would be the other place I would put that. Wow. Good answer. Now, my uh, faculty and staff would be disappointed. I, I didn't say that I would give large raises where possible yes. on campus. So, so I suppose there would be some large raises in store too. There you go. Last question. Do you have yes. any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Uh, well, I would uh, start with a really old one. Uh, many people know that Dell Carnegie was a student oh. here at the university. And so I would be remiss I if I didn't say uh, how to win friends and influence people. Wow. Um, Dave Stewart, who is the co-founder of Worldwide Technology, which is a very large uh, privately held uh, tech com company in St. Louis, he wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called uh, Doing Business by the Good Book. So for Dave, I would recommend uh, that book as well. Um, and then I'd probably, what I've always found interesting were the ones that, that uh, focus on uh, behavioral type issues and motivation. Uh, so, and even quirky experimental types of uh, study. So I, I'd say anything by Malcolm Gladwell oh, yeah, would absolutely. be worth reading. Uh, he, he's very fascinating, great writer. Uh, a classic, of course, is Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Yeah. Uh, so as a, a leader of an organization, really thinking about what that means for the organization, what is your why? And so uh, I think that would be important. And you know, I was a management undergraduate. Uh, that was my undergraduate degree. And so I'd have to say anything written by Peter Drucker, even though it's a little old at this point, would certainly be worth looking into. Good. Well, this was fun. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Well, thanks, Dave. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.